After a one-verse break at the end of chapter 36, we're going to pick up at the start of chapter 37. When King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was in charge of the palace, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. I myself will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. And then we return back to chapter two. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, for he may, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a loaded set of passages, as Isaiah often is. When we get to this time of year, we are often mired deep in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 7 talks about a child who will be born. When the time is right, who will change everything? Isaiah 9 talks about the people who lived in a land of deep darkness, and on them light has shined. Isaiah 2 gives us this image going forward of the peaceable kingdom. And then there's 36 37, which do not really fit with what we've been doing and what we've been told, what we're used to hearing from Isaiah. And so where we are is that Assyria, large nation, roughly Iraq today, um, has been basically conquering everything for about 100 years. And it's 701 BCE. We know that because it's the 14th year of the realm, the, the reign of Hezekiah. And that means that just 21 years earlier, Assyria swept in and destroyed the entire northern kingdom. Samaria is real, is gone. It has been assimilated, it has been restored. It no longer exists as an entity. And so we're left with the southern kingdom, Judah, Jerusalem. And King Hezekiah is king of that. And so we find ourselves that the king of Assyria has sent his cupbearer, because I'm not going to say Rashikah 16 times during this period. His advisor, his trusted companion, 
um, all those things, to talk with the high lucky mucks of Jerusalem, and they meet at the Fuller's Field, north of the city, outside of the city. And that is the same place that in Isaiah 7, Isaiah met with Hezekiah's father when the northern kingdom was being destroyed and asked Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, to believe in God. We're getting a reprise of that story. And I know you're all biblical scholars, and I knew you all remember that happened in Isaiah 7. I just wanted to catch on that for anybody who forgot. And the message that the cupbearer brings. I mean, this is political theater at its finest. And if you think that there's nothing in the Bible that's still happening today, reread this and think about it. The first thing he does is in that section that we've skipped, the advisor to Hezekiah. Um, I'm on here, it says so. Okay. Um, it's getting into. It's picking it up. Okay. Okay, so we're getting technical things. Why don't I turn it off and then back on and we'll see. That solves 90% of all technical problems. Okay, there we go. Okay, now I'm louder again. Okay, so. I'm not going to repeat all that. I'm going to hope that Zoom caught it on some level. So there is this uh, conference between high-level folks, three high-level folks from Hezekiah, and a high-level person from Sennacherib. And high-level folks from Jerusalem have said, please speak Aramaic, don't speak Hebrew. Let's, let's conduct this on a high level. And the cupbearer is really, really politically savvy. He gives his entire message in Hebrew so that the crowd can hear him and understand what he's saying. Today's language, we call that playing to the base or controlling the narrative or things like that. And so the next thing that happens is um, a mixed message, really. The cupbearer says, really? You know, we're pretty fierce. We've just destroyed everything in the Northern Kingdom in the last 20 years. We're coming to you from Lachish, and I probably shouldn't tell you this, but we were so brutal destroying Lachish that Sennacherib wants to hang pictures of it on the wall in the palace, which is actually what he does to intimidate anybody else who comes. That's how brutal the sacking of Lachish was. And so really what you ought to do I mean, the smart thing to do really is just to put out a sign that says under new management and become part of the Assyrian Empire. Because honestly, not much is going to change. We're going to let you sit here and eat of your own vines and your own branches and your own fig trees and your own cisterns. It's going to be nothing is really going to change. Well, until I deport all of you. Nothing is really going to change. And yes, Hamilton junkies, you now have music running through your head. And then he turns the story and says, by the way, you know, remember that nobody has been able to stop us yet. So don't listen to the king when he tells you God is going to do it because we have run over so many gods on this conquest highway. He's just going to be another speed bump. 
oh, and isn't your God the God of Samaria? Because we just smushed him like a bug. So if you think your God is going to do something, you may want to rethink that. I mean, this guy is polished. He is smooth. He uses the language they expect to hear. So when we hear a prophetic word from uh, from any of the Old Testament prophets, they often start, thus says the Lord. Well, our good friend, the cupbearer, has said, well, thus says the king, about four times in here. He is setting them up. He speaks to them of a land flowing with milk and honey, of wine, of bread. He uses all the language they're used to hearing. Except he really drops the ball and doesn't understand how important the land is to the people. That going to another place just isn't going to do it. But this is how he's spinning this story. Essentially, he is asking the people of God, just give up on being the people of God, and nothing else will change. I mean, it's a pretty big ask. It's actually something that, like, most political parties ask every election is, just give up on who you voted for last time and vote for it, and it'll all be fine. Right? I mean, none of this is new. Well, we're 2,800 years from this story. So, what happens next is that the advisors from Israel do not respond. They go back to Hezekiah because he told them not to respond. He tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, we had a similar story where there was a a general and an army sent to a king to do something impossible. The king got the bad news. On and off all day. Um, And that king basically just had a pity party for himself. This king knows that there's a prophet in the land. And he says... First, I'm going to church, and then you're going to the prophet. So Hezekiah goes up to the temple, to the house of the Lord. He prays, and he sends his messengers on those same three people on to Isaiah and says, Isaiah, we got trouble. It's a day of distress. It's a day of disaster. It is horrible. And by the way, Isaiah, the Lord your God should be able to do something about this. The Lord, your God, Isaiah, has he heard what they are saying about him? Because essentially, this guy from Assyria, you don't even want to know what he said about God's mother. And I want to know if God's going to come down and do something about it. That is essentially the text here. Isaiah basically says, don't worry about it. God's got it covered. There's a couple places where this really falls apart for our messenger from Assyria. But it's so well tied to our lives today that we actually have to slow down and look at it. The first thing that our friend from Assyria does wrong is that he assumes that speaking the language is speaking the values. 
He assumes that he can speak Hebrew, and so that's enough. He knows the right words. He knows how to put them together. He can send the message that will be received. Well, he really drops the ball when he suggests that the people of God could move off of the promised land, and it would be fine. If he knew the story at all, he would know how long it took to get there, and that they have no interest in leaving there. And that stuff's promised them in Abraham, and they don't actually get there until, well, one, two, three, four, fifteen, sixteen generations later. Oops. So he makes the mistake of thinking that he speaks the language means he speaks the language. He also makes the mistake about who's in power. He thinks it's just about a king and a king. Sennacherib and Hezekiah, they're the decision makers in this story. Let's flash back to that other unnamed king in Elisha and Naaman. Do you remember him throwing his hands up in the air and going, who do you think I am, God, to have control over life and death? These Judean kings know that they are not the top of the food chain, but Hezekiah is used to thinking or Sennacherib is used to thinking he's at the top of the food chain. And so his cupbearer is convinced that's how it works. And then he sort of, well, he really messes up, I think, by, by essentially making this about my God is bigger than your God and my army can beat up your God at the end. Because if you want to back God into a corner, that's a really good way to do it. But also, it plays a, a, against something from the section we left out, where he basically says, we are the instruments. We, the Assyrian army, are the instruments of God's judgment on you. Well, if you're the instruments of God's judgment on me, and, and, and my God is weak, well, then we can whoop you too. you got to have a big God. God, maybe, yes, there we go. Um, you got to have a big God if you want to hold a big stick. The promise that the Rob Shakah makes, the cupbearer makes, is that essentially nothing will change. You just have to give up being the people of God. You just have to give up being the chosen people of God. You just have to have, well, you have to believe me, the cupbearer says, about the powers of this world that your God can't beat my army. And that no matter what your king says about the promises and the truth and the power of God, they fall short compared to me and the army at your gates. And so... That, I think, is a place where a lot of us have spent at least some time, is that, well, if I just do this, nothing will really change. It'll be fine. Dad worked for IBM for almost 30 years, and he watched an arrangement of managers and CEOs at IBM go through, and they all promised different things, and they all said, oh, nothing's really going to change with your benefits or your pay package, or your expectations, it'll be fine. 
guess what? The benefits changed, the pay package changed, the work expectations changed, but it sounded really good to run on. I mean, the cupbearer here is in a similar case, he's slightly more honest. He says, you're gonna be living, oh, just where you are, it'll be great. You'll be living just where you are, the fields you've planted, with the things you're harvesting, with the cisterns you've created, with the water, until I decide I want your land and I move you somewhere else. I mean, our own American history harkens back to a painful time in the 1830s when people from Georgia and North Carolina and South Carolina and Tennessee walked through Southern Illinois on their way to the Indian territories in Oklahoma. Because it's fine, it's good land, you can farm it, you can grow things on it, you can have houses there, you can live there. But it's not the same thing, is it? As being at home, as being in the place where everything happens, where everything did happen. And so we have that challenge that this, we know better. We know it's not the same, and we know it's not going to be the same. But maybe it'd be easier if we just pretended it would be. Maybe it'd be easier if we didn't fight it if we just gave in on our principles and we thought we'd be fine because we'd have three squares and a cot, a place to lay our heads. Maybe we should just give up. Maybe we don't have the energy for this one. Maybe it doesn't really matter that much to us because it looks like we're going to come out of this fine. I mean, that's essentially what our cupbearer is hoping to sway his audience, who are the people of the city of Jerusalem, into doing. All you have to do is give up the identity of who you are, and everything will be fine. Well, put that way, that sounds a little more significant, doesn't it? All you have to do is stop believing that the God who brought us out of Egypt can bring us out of an army at the gates. All you have to do is believe that the God who heals Naaman can't do this. All you have to do is believe that the chosen people of God no longer matter to God. Put that way, it's really not a great stewardship sermon, is it? This is a place where they have to decide, ultimately, are they going to bend? Are they going to compromise or not? Hezekiah is going to make his decision. So what happens is Hezekiah goes to church, goes to Isaiah, Isaiah comes back to Hezekiah, There's a really long prayer by Isaiah in there. And at the very end of chapter 37, God says, I heard what they said about my mother. And the angel of the Lord goes out from the city 
and kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. A rumor is started that the king of Cush is going to invade Assyria. Sennacherib goes home. Sennacherib goes to church. He goes to worship his god, Nisroch, and two of his sons come in and kill him while he's at prayer. And the rains pass to his son. Jerusalem is not conquered in 701 BCE. Five eighty-seven, completely different story. Seven hundred one, they hold on. All they would have had to do is give up. To be faithful in this challenge when the armies are at the gates is something different. We talk about it that we know what we would do if, until we're in if, right? I know what I would do. I know what I'd want done if I was on a ventilator or feeding tube. I know what my spouse would want done or my parents or my child, and I could do it. (sighs) Until we're there, right? It's easy for us to talk about the power and the love and the grace of God in Jesus Christ when things are going well. What about when the army is at the door? I don't mean an army. What about when the collection letters are stuffed full in the mailbox and your voicemail is full of people wanting to know when you're going to pay them and you're afraid to answer your cell phone anymore? What about them? What about when it's the week of Thanksgiving And there is no money to buy food because you just paid Ameren and you got your medicines and you don't know how to explain to your kids or your grandkids most likely that you're raising that there's not going to be a meal this week and frankly, ramen and beans is going to be it. Is it easy to believe in the God of abundance then? Our faith isn't made in the good times. Faith is forged in the times when it's tough to believe, when the armies are at the gates, when it would be just as easy, if not easier, to just say, okay, Sennacherib, I can change whose money I'm paying. I can change which empire I'm in. It's fine. Just come in as long as long as there's still food and such, it'll be okay. And that's that's the challenge in this text, is it really asks the people of God to put their faith on the line and not to give in to what we know is true. It would be easier not to be the called people of God. God puts some incredibly tough demands on us. 
it is not a rose garden. It would be easier not to be the people of God sometimes. If you've ever had a guilty conscience, you know what I mean. It would be easier not to be the people of God sometimes. And then we would cease to be who we are. The reason that we close with this Isaiah 2 passage is a contrast in what we believe as the people of God and what the world tells us. We know the truth of this passage in 36 and 37, of armies at the door, of promises that are not going to be kept, of the fact that new management is going to change everything. But we believe in the promise in chapter 2 that one day we will all gather on God's holy mountain. One day, swords will be beat into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and the nations will not learn war anymore. That's what we believe. We know the rest of it to be how we function, but we believe that God is doing something different. And so, as we go out this day on Christ the King, I want you to hear the difference between thus says the king and thus says the Lord. Not just in the words, but in the ark that moves forward. Thus says the king is only good for the king. Thus says the Lord is good for all of creation. To God alone be the glory, the stay, and forevermore. Amen.